0: What's up everyone, and welcome to Making the Shift.
1: We're an SLP couple from California with three boys and a passion for finding better ways to support autistic kids.
0: I'm Chris Winger, better known as Speech Dude, and I'm a neurodivergent high school SLP and the creator of The DASL, the dynamic assessment of social emotional learning.
1: And I'm Jesse Ginsberg, a sensory integration trained SLP, owner of a top-rated speech therapy clinic in Los Angeles, and the creator of the Inside Out sensory programs for parents and therapists. Join us weekly to learn neurodiversity-affirming ways to support social-emotional development and regulation in autistic kids.
0: Are you ready to make the shift?
1: Hello, hello everyone. Welcome to episode 15 of Making the Shift. Today we are going to be talking all about how autism is a different neurotype. If you're here live, before I forget, put in the chat where you're from. We always love to see that. So you will notice that there's a body that should be sitting here next to me. Funny, not so funny story is that this show I have anxiety every single week because I never know if Chris is going to make it here on time and you guys may not know this about him but he has a very long commute so it takes him like at least hi that was faster than I expected I was gonna say an hour and a half to get home and he FaceTimed me about an hour ago exactly with the video that he showed me was a flat tire and you had to facetime me because if you had called me i would have been like no that's impossible flat as can be i thought you would have been like messing with me i would have thought for sure
0: the tires are paper thin (laughs) i'm serious it's like a heavy car with like paper thin tires
1: so i never know if he's gonna make it on time for these shows and now school's back in session so you have to go back to your commute and then he FaceTimes me and he's in front of his car with a flat tire.
0: Oh my gosh, so much. But I I'm cannot here.
1: believe you're here
0: celebrating <laughs> in full uh, full bodied, full spirit, full energy. We are good. That's
1: great. Very happy you made it on time. Everyone's typing in where they're from.
0: Oh, well, I wanted to say hello. I see uh, we got a San Fernando Valley. That's not far from where we're at. It was a warm day.
1: Yeah. Sarah said, What a way to start the school year. Oh,
0: gosh. Yeah, exactly. The nice thing about it is that well, I'm getting all of these hiccups and all of the difficult uh, things done at the beginning, like today, because uh, once I get through this adversity of, of life on Tuesdays, I am going to be just um, fine for tomorrow. It's like my fuel for uh for being tenacious (laughs)
1: there you go there
0: we are and
1: there's your daily cup of inspiration
0: that's right that's what we do so we take setbacks and flat tires and we turn them into growth opportunity and possibility
1: and round fluffy tires
0: and uh, debt on my credit card because i have to get a new tire cool Let's jump into our topic what is it jesse what are we talking yeah, so about
1: so i said we're talking today about autism as a different neurotype and for me learning this idea was so revolutionary because i'd never heard autism described as a neurotype and that means a different brain type a different way that the brain functions so A neurotypical brain might function one way, an autistic brain might function another way. And it's such, I feel like it's just a lot more respectful of a way to see autistic people as a difference in brain type. So I think we, we, think so much about like the medical model of disability, a lot of the things we do is are based on that, which is looking only at deficits and what needs to be fixed or what needs to be cured. But the neurodiversity movement is all about pushing the social model, right? So it's all about, well, the issues that autistic people have in the world exist because of these systemic barriers in society. It's like the world wasn't set up for them, which results in them having struggles.
0: Right. Absolutely. Let's, let's go back real quick so we can give kind of like an easy, like visualization or image. So neurodiversity, neuro meaning brain, diversity meaning difference, right? So when we think about cultural diversity, different cultures, and we accept that. Neurodiversity is saying, hey, all brains are different. And it looks like we had a comment here. It says different, but not less. And that's exactly right. We have different brain types, right? So that's kind of where we're at. Um, and then um, shadowing what Jesse was mentioning, moving from a historic model of looking at what was once viewed. And I shouldn't say what was once still to our current day, really heavily viewed as all deficits based versus making the shift over and viewing brains as differences and saying, hey, we need to create an environment and a society um, that removes barriers and makes everything accessible for everybody for all different brain types. So that's kind of the important thing.
1: Yeah, and one thing that really supports this is the idea of the double empathy problem, which I also found so fascinating when I learned about it. And, you know, if you haven't heard of the double empathy problem, it's basically saying that the the struggle to understand one person is a, a certain type of people is not one sided. So it's saying that the reason why we struggle to understand that other person's perspective is because we have such different experiences in our lives and such different expectations. So autistic people will, the problem is not one-sided, meaning it's not just that autistic people have trouble understanding non-autistic people. It goes the other way as well. Non-autistic people having trouble understanding autistic people.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like the idea of, you know, we tend to sometimes put the demands of an autistic student or child what we are working with by the perspective taking thing without thinking, Hey, well, why don't, what about the non-autistic people and giving them a perspective of, you know, what a lived experience is of that, of an autistic person, you know, different way of communicating, different way of socializing, different way of experiencing sensory input, a variety of things. And so really that's, that's um, right what Je- Jesse's mentioning. The double empathy problem really is saying, hey, you know what? Two autistic people are going to be able to socialize and communicate easier with each other than an autistic person with, communicating, socializing with a non-autistic person.
1: And back to you know empathy, what empathy is, is really being able to understand another person's experience. So that makes complete sense that this person is experiencing the world completely differently. So that makes it inherently difficult for another person to be able to empathize with that situation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: But then what you just said, which is there's so much research and we'll have to post some links to this research, but there's so much research showing that, you know, autistic people communicate with other autistic people just as strongly as non-autistic people communicate with non-autistic people. So interaction happens between non-autistic, non-autistic. It's strong. It is just as strong between from autistic person to another autistic person. And there's also so much other research, which I brought because there's so much good stuff. But saying that um, the when people were in a study and they were rating the quality of the rapport that they were building with the person they were communicating with, that autistic people rated their rapport with other autistic people higher than autistic people with non-autistic. And the opposite went as well, which is non-autistic and non-autistic had a higher rating of rapport than non-autistic to autistic.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like if you were to really if I were to kind of break down a narrative, it would be like a non-autistic person would say, hey, you know what? One of the things I enjoy doing when I communicate and socialize with others is I like to talk about some things that happened that are random over the weekend. I like to make small talk and engage with multiple people. That's, what we would hear from a non-autistic person an autistic person might say you know i really like to connect with people that i share the the same interest with i don't like to do small talk or chit chat chit chat for hours chit chat chit chat for hours on end on the phone um and so that's kind of really tying the differences between social communications and styles
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, well, of course, one social one person has a social communication style of one and the other has another. So it just makes total sense that the communication would be stronger in the separate groups. But the research shows the opposite, too, which is that the that rapport that autistic people reported that their rapport with non-autistic people was poorer than with other autistic people. Um, And I think what's really interesting, too, about all this research is kind of what it suggests. And one of the things being that, why is this other than the fact that their social communication style is similar, but other things to think about are that, you know, maybe the behaviors we see in autistic people or autistic traits, like say an autistic person is stimming or say an autistic person. is having a conversation and they're not making a lot of eye contact. That doesn't feel problematic to another autistic person, whereas a non-autistic person may be starting to make judgments about that person. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I think that's the kind of the assumption where it comes from when a non-autistic person makes an assumption of, oh, well, that person's hand flapping, so we got to make sure we reduce that. Or that person's not making eye contact. I'm used to making eye contact. Let's force that person into socializing and making eye contact. None of that's helpful for anybody.
1: Yeah. And it really raises the question about how do we judge people socially, you know, because to a person, a, an autistic person is making completely different judgments about a person than a non-autistic person. Um, And, you know, non-autistic people are more likely to want to have conversations with people, even if they are less socially warm, even if they would consider that person less socially warm. That doesn't stop them from wanting to have a conversation with them in the future. Whereas maybe a person who was non-autistic? They would think, "Oh, that person wasn't very friendly, and I don't want to talk to them again." So it really this goes back to the episode we did—I don't know what number—on autism and friendships. You know, as yeah. you were talking, I was thinking about that. Was that it's they're looking for different different things that are important to them in a conversation, and maybe like something like shared interests would. Way more a lot heavily on how they rated that conversation than just the person's demeanor.
0: Right. No, absolutely. I think that's the important thing too, is identifying that we be cautious on the concept of forcing friendships, right? Like, Hey, you know what? During this unstructured time, you're going to go out and initiate a conversation with three peers uh, to make a friend. It's like, that's not natural. That's not helpful. All that does is increase social anxiety and much more significant um, and difficulties on that. But, you know, yeah, really structuring an environment where natural conversations can occur, where friendships can be built based on what we're talking about, you know, interest and in, um, sp- um, specific communication styles and socialization styles and things.
1: Yeah. And an I nature. think this is like, it almost is opening a can of worms to bigger conversations and things like why are we so quick to judge people when we meet them? You know, I mean, I'm not saying there's an answer um, or like that the world's going to change, but I think that it will be interesting to see as the neurodiversity movement marches forward and it's better known that there are differences in social communication styles and people are more accepting of autistic communication styles, like what that might look like.
0: Yeah. I, I think that ties back into, we I mentioned this a couple episodes back, but talking about that deeper discussion of why sometimes we tend to be judgmental off the bat. I think it ties back into the expectation thing too if you really think about it. Now, I don't wanna speak just directly about when we are talking about autistic students. I'm talking about in general in life, autistic or not autistic. The, the way that we make ourselves unhappy, whether we're talking about autistic students or not, right? Is by placing expectations on others our boss, like we place expectations on how they're going to reply or our significant other, our neighbor, whoever it is. And every day as life moves forward, people change, situations change. And when we place expectations on things, we are automatically setting ourselves up to live an unhappy life. And that's just the reality of it for, for when we go out for anybody. And then what do we tend to do when we work with artistic students? We end up placing expectations and then we create goals that say, well, let's work on an expected and unexpected behavior goal. And it's like, oh my gosh, we're just creating a world of of unhappiness for ourselves because why not just let people, you know, live their, be, be them.
1: Authentic Authentic selves.
0: selves. Autistic or not, right? (laughs) How many times have like, I don't know. I'll use me as an example. In the past, I'll go back in the past where I've had an expectation set on somebody. And then when that person didn't do something, I'm like, ah, like I can't believe that. And then I would be so mad, right? It's because I set too many expectations or and set expectations in the first place.
1: It makes me think about you. You're neurodivergent. You have ADHD and I've had to learn your communication style. Like that totally affects your communication style for example chris cannot be on the phone longer than 10 minutes
0: oh i hate being on the phone
1: it's like i could just sense you are listening not listening to one word i'm saying like if it's nearing 10 minutes i'll look at the phone i know
0: right yeah you know (laughs) she knows but it's like you have
1: to learn how people communicate best so that you can and i advocate for
0: myself because i know that i don't like to be on the phone so when i am on the phone I have over time been able to come up with certain catchphrases for myself, like "Hey, you know what? I got about a minute left, and then I'm pulling into the parking lot. I got to get to this meeting."
1: You're giving uh, away or, all of your secrets.
0: <laughs> or I'll just say something like, uh, "Hey, you know what? My phone's running out of juice right now. I'm about a battery, and I uh, I, I got to wrap no, things up." No, you don't have to
1: because you just go, "Yeah, yeah," like you
0: people you know. know. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I wanted to go right back to that expectation, though, too. Here's something that I've noticed when working with students is that when I remove any expectations and we just have like a situation where natural communication occurs, I notice a lot of great things happening like that I wasn't expecting. So when I remove the expectations and then all of a sudden the student says, hey, you know what? Did you uh, what's your what's your favorite uh, version of Five Nights at Freddy's? And one says, oh, part two was the best, you know, um, and then they have this like interaction because I didn't have expectations. And then when something does happen, I'm like, there's the magic. That's what I'm looking. for. I wasn't even expecting that. So a lot of the times you'll see great things happen because of it. So um, really cool stuff. Yeah. You know, I wanted to comment. Um, There was a comment um, in the chat room um, here that was mentioning um, definitely on how do we make the shift from focusing so much on deficits and getting away from that model and focusing more on how can we support the individual and provide an environment that removes barriers. Um, And But how is that model relevant for those who might have more complex communication needs, some of those who might have barriers to accessing certain um, communication in their community. And the answer to that is we as an entire community and society have to continue our best to make sure we are removing those barriers. And that means allowing access 24 seven in all environments to uh, communication. Like there's no need to put an iPad that is the main source of someone's communication. On top in the of the broom
1: closet,
0: uh, yeah, in the, in the broom <laughs> closet to collect dust and to collect spiders. That's not helping anybody. Um, but just the other thing I wanted to really note too, and this is really important. This is a, a, I printed this out, and it's, it's, I'm in the process of thinking about maybe making it a poster with other things on it. But one of them is this idea here's how you could really, really, really help your autistic clients and students make socializing optional. <laughs> Why nobody wants to go into an environment like where they feel pressured.
1: To, we can make sure it's out of that.
0: Yes, t- socializing <laughs> optional because what we're doing and what we are communicating to others is saying, "Hey, we got no pressures here." And when people like not let's think about the not non-autistic person, when you feel pressured to have to communicate in something you don't want to what does that do up here? That makes you up in your brain. You go, man, now I've got a little bit of anxiety. Now I don't even want to go to that event because I've got so much social anxiety. So times that by a million for when you put pressures on somebody who lives in a, a mostly neurotypical world, right? You're really increasing the social anxiety. Um, that could be harmful. So
1: and providing an not environment. Not just optional, but varied. Like what so- what might be fun socially for one person might be totally different. Like maybe that means your students sitting in your classroom at lunch and they're each on their phones playing their own game, but they're together.
0: Oh yeah, no, totally. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And then communicating however you want, like, Hey, right now, if you don't want to socialize or, or, you know, verbalize, you you can write something down if you want, shoot me a text, email me, use your AAC device, whatever it might be Uh, always as an option as well.
1: And your students, they will text you.
0: <laughs> now, yeah, you know what? I, I do communicate with some of them.
1: And after they graduate and they call you, uh, it's the best.
0: The, yeah, you Fine know, note. saying uh, saying happy birthday and posting pictures, it's mm-hmm. cool. I like that. So, uh, to to sum up, some of the topic shifting away from a deficits based model, which is the medical model, into really accepting how our brains are all different and. There's no superior brain or inferior brain and really creating an environment, speech therapy services, um, school environment, community, uh, where we're removing barriers. So everybody, so it's equitable for, you know, so it's inclusive. I should say inclusive is a much better word. So it's inclusive for everybody. So everybody has access to, to what they need. I think that's really important.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I have to give a shout out to KJ, who's in the chat, who is one of the autistic contributors to our Autism Support Resources product. So happy you could be here. KJ, and he's chiming in, go read all of the things that he wrote. It's good stuff.
0: I love it. Yeah, and he's been providing some great information over mm-hmm. here in the, uh, the chat room as well. Yes. So yeah, I mean that's all that I have on my end. And we hope that you got some value uh and some things to think about moving forward. Um definitely the double empathy problem um is is really uh something that to explore. And the other stuff that we're talking about with the medical versus social model um is really uh some some key topics to really um knowing ways that we can support our. Our, our students,
1: yeah, absolutely, and clients,
0: and kids, and everybody. It's what it's all about. So, any last words, Jesse? It's all you. You want me to have some last words? Okay. For the last words, you know, some of these topics and things, you uh, might know that I work in the school system. So, if any of you work um, in the school setting, I have an IEP course um, that is in pre-sale mode right now. You can locate that in the show notes or on my. Um, link in the social media handles. And um, that's all I have for right now.
1: Yeah. Awesome. So um, you'll, yeah, I was going to say, we just got to do your master class last week. That was free. It was so much fun and people learned a lot. So if you feel like this is something you really want to learn more about and you have students on IEPs or you're a parent with a child on IEPs, I could say, Chris's stuff is all super, super helpful if you're looking to make your IEPs more neurodiversity affirming.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We try, I try to keep it fun, upbeat, use a lot of analogies, take big concepts and make them to where we can grasp them so we can change the world. That's what it's all about. That's what the neurodiversity paradigm is about.
1: All right, everyone. Thanks for coming.
0: Yes. Until next time. Cheers. Adios. Bye.
1: If you enjoyed today's episode, hit subscribe, write a review, or share it with a friend.
0: Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.